4: Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. My name's Tom Clark, and this week we're talking to the British Constitution embodied. It's Vernon Bogdanor on, what else, Brexit. First though, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospect's Arts and Books editor, Samir Rahim, and our political correspondent, Alex Dean. Um, Alex, you've been thinking about something that's not quite Brexit for one week only, haven't you? This time the party system.
2: It's become kind of a fashionable argument to make, and I've seen it all over the place from all sorts of commentators across the political spectrum, that one of the real lessons of the last few years in British politics is the fracturing of the two-party system, uh, the the two main parties. Uh, They're kind of falling apart and coming under unprecedented strain, all kinds of cracks, and actually won't exist for long as we know it. And I've just been thinking about it over the last few days and wondering whether actually I think the exact opposite (laughs) and whether the lesson actually of the last few years and months is the incredible resilience of the two-party system. Because despite everything, despite the huge ideological fault lines in both Labour and the Tories, you know, Bill Cash and Anna Soubry still both (laughs) follow the Conservative whip. They're still in the same party despite, you know, that there, there can be more on opposite ends of the biggest issue of our time, so bring it back to Brexit. And in the Labour Party, you've got Chukurumana uh, and Corbyn, both of whom still, you know, um, clearly, you know, Corbyn's leader of the Labour Party. is still in there, despite disagreeing with Corbyn on his most fundamental policy plank. So I think, actually, the two-party system has proven incredibly um, it's endured.
4: I remember writing lots of articles at The Guardian in the run-up to and then the aftermath of the 2010 election about the two-party system... Falling away, which it kind of did in 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 that election with the Lib Dem surge. But since then, you know, um, it didn't um collapse in the end in the face of UKIP in the 2015 election. The Conservatives did very well, and then of course in 2017, it bounced back, didn't it? We got over eighty percent or uh, for the for the
2: two main parties in 2017. The two main parties took the lion's share of the vote. Um, and then look at the confidence vote in the Commons. Uh, in in the government recently tabled by Labour and it split exactly down party lines and every every Tory ended up falling in as you'd expect so I think actually this quite fashionable view that main political parties won't exist in five, ten years time I'm not sure the evidence actually supports that. They are fracturing but in a weird way (laughs) that Mm. means that kind of loyalty is kind of fracturing but people aren't actually abandoning the name of the party they're not kind of uh, leaving the party. They're just not doing what the party leadership says.
4: Yeah, I mean, and that I've heard from MPs directly within the last week, them saying, like, I don't bother to look at the Labour whip anymore. I don't know what I'm being whipped. I just see what's coming up and vote about how I want. And people did say when Corbyn first got in, you know, he just so routinely rebelled. How can you expect anyone else not to routinely rebel? And there's certainly... A lot more of that, MPs not doing what they're told.
3: Yeah, isn't it interesting that MPs seem to be much more individualised now? They do see, and I think I wonder if that's whether social media has got something to do with that. Someone like David Lammy plays much more attention to what, you know, the clips are, that he puts in uh, on Twitter than he would do, um, you know, whatever Jeremy Corbyn's telling him to do. And he, he can ignore that. You can develop your own sort of personality. On the other side, someone like Jacob Rees Mogg is just his own person but of course these peace and w- people wouldn't necessarily get elected without the without the party machinery behind them because we still have this first past the post system and that it, until that changes if that ever changes uh, we're always going to have um two-party system really aren't we
4: and yet there has been hasn't there some polling recently which is supposedly saying and i know the interpretation of this is contested but supposedly saying that the um divide leave remain is now a kind of deeper identification than being a labour or conservative voter have you had a look at that at all alex
2: i have been looking at that i mean. It doesn't surprise me hugely in a way because I think the Brexit question, uh, and it does always come back to Brexit, I'm afraid, um, I think it's really interesting because of the way that at one end, it's the most technical, maybe even boring thing all about kind of tariff rate quotas at the WTO and stuff like that. And it's incredibly nerdy. Um, but then at the other end, it speaks fundamentally to our view of the world uh, and the way we think the future of the country should go and whether we're kind of you know open closed uh, i don't i already feel my bias creeping in but um how we think you survive as a country in the 21st century so i think that is an incredibly big divide and i'm not surprised that people are identifying so strongly with it particularly at the moment
4: and yet it doesn't seem like it is encouraging people to uh, break off and, and, and form new parties, at least quite, not quite yet. But if the party um, is, so to speak, not quite over for our politicians, we might, Samir, you think, be facing a reckoning of a very different sort in the world of pop.
3: Yes, there's a new documentary which um, just launched coming on Channel 4 quite soon about uh, Michael Jackson. Uh, it's called Leaving Neverland. Uh, and it's filled with a lot of sort of shocking... Um, Uh, and quite convincing allegations about his um, pedophilic behavior with two young boys. Now, these aren't um, brand new uh, allegations, as it were, but I think for people like me and many others who are big Michael Jackson fans, grew up with him in the 80s, seemed to be, you know, in a way, a kind of embodiment of of innocence. We didn't really want to believe any of these stories. And even now, in the office last week, one of my colleagues was just playing... Michael Jackson, and it seemed perfectly normal. And I wonder whether there's something to do with artists we really admire.
4: I'm, I'm surprised. I mean, I know that you like Bob Dylan, that fits with your thing for poetry. Michael Jackson, I didn't have you down as.
3: Oh I mean, you know, we all have our. You know, I grew up, grew up Michael Jackson. Also, and I think he is, he is absolutely. You know, he was absolutely brilliant right from the early days, and. I can sort of feel like I can maybe still listen to the 1970s Jackson Firestoff when he really was this innocent um, child going through a very difficult time in the hands of his father. Um, But I don't know whether we can really um, fully... I don't know whether I can really listen to the stuff that he does in the 80s and 90s anymore simply because I find it very difficult to separate the image that he projected from all these allegations.
4: But it's... I mean, it's the perennial question, isn't it? Like, can you enjoy... The art of a, uh, I mean, maybe we do use the monster word now about Michael Jackson. I don't know, but you know, um, uh, it would apply in um, to, can you? Is it okay to listen to Wagner's opera? People have argued about that for a long time, and I think on that one, you think you can.
3: Oh yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's very different. I mean, Wagner was a vile anti semite. Um, lots of other great writers in the nineteenth century was uh, were uh, Dickens was wasn't very nice about Jews either and uh, I think Wagner's appropriation by the Nazis after he died Mm. is quite different from Michael Jackson or or, or, or whoever actually committing terrible offences or or Eric Gill for example, the um, draftsman um, Lionel Shriver wrote a piece in the uh, in Harper's, um, which came over the weekend, arguing the opposite point of view, saying, um, you know, why can't we watch the Cosby Show anymore? You know, it's just, you know, we can we can watch it. Isn't it unfair that just because uh, the main star of it has been convicted of um, uh, rape offences? But I think I just can't buy that argument, I'm afraid, because uh, again, Cosby Show, another great '80s hit that I, I used to love and watch when I uh, when I was younger. I mean, it's a yeah, fully family oriented thing, something when somebody was projecting their personality. There's also the interesting thing when I mentioned this on Twitter, somebody mentioned a quite good point, and they said, "Well, maybe it's the dissonance between, for example, someone like the you know the Jackson Five or Cosby, where it was quite a wholesome presentation of them, and then uh, uh, we find out terrible things that they've done. The dissonance between those two things means that we find it more difficult to deal with."
4: But it, you do get into how where where are you going to draw the line? We know that like John Lennon. Maybe his songs exposed him as being a more troubled character, but, you know, he did thump his girlfriend when he was young. and Hendrix, Bowie. Well, I think Bowie's quite an
3: interesting one, actually, because after he died, I mean, there was a sort of welter of um, uh, tributes uh, to him, great musician and all the rest of it. But, you know, you don't need to look very far into the biographies to see that there was a lot of you know dodgy stuff going on with girls possibly underage or or whatever
4: Um, i remember on the day um that david bowie died of being at the guardian and the like someone was saying you can't write this was quite soon after the jimmy savile stuff you know you can't write a big piece without mentioning the fact that he slept with this extremely young child who um had been involved with someone else who was then disgraced over it even with the Savile stuff going on some people were saying no 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 you don't want to put that in there because that will taint like what overall is a massive artistic contribution and we did put it in in the end but it's it's interesting that it was disputed in a way that with a kind of straight down the line heavy rocker everyone would probably have been interest uh, okay with with including it
3: this is the hero worship of the 60s 70s generation um, who who now are the fans and other people in charge of newspapers and write the headlines and uh, and all the rest of it i remember i don't know if anyone's seen the pretty execrable film the boat that rocked so it's about sort of pirate radio and the glory days and there's a character played by reese ifans who is sort of based on jimmy savile and various other characters but before we knew. Publicly about what Jimmy Savile did, and then this character is essentially portrayed um, as a predatory guy going around with lots of naked young women all the time, and they're always the joke is that that whenever he is, he's there. Women just take their clothes off in front of him, and blah blah blah. Um, and uh, it's the sort of boring, staid people at the BBC who want to dampen down on the, um, the, you know, the liberating 60s. Um, rewatching that film, the level of, first of all, smugness about uh, the 60s and 70s, but also just the level of, again, extreme naivety. What do people think was actually going on in that circumstance? Um, and it, it, I don't know, there is certainly a reckoning happening right now and there are no easy answers.
4: But you don't want to wipe out too much music and television and whatever else, do you? I mean, because if you applied standards to people who could, because of their circumstances, get away with a lot and did get away with a lot,
3: you might wipe out an awful lot of the pop legacy of the 60s and 70s. Well, maybe... Shall I take it highbrow again? You know, Walter Benjamin said that... um, Every document of civilization is also a document of barbarism. The idea that something could be a beautifully created work of art, but also be troubling and difficult, and have things about it that aren't um, simple or easy—I um, think—I think that's a view that we need to—we need to come to. Thank
4: you very much indeed uh, for that, Samir. And now on to our main event. This week we're going to be talking to Professor Vernon. Bogdanor, the great expert on the Constitution, who tells us, amongst other things, why his hopes of a second referendum he thinks are now slipping away.
1: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up.
0: is that the government can only be uh, required to call a general election if there is a specific vote of no confidence in the government. Before that, any prime minister could pledge confidence on a specific measure. For example, if the fixed-term Parliament Act wasn't there, Theresa May could have said, the deal's a matter of confidence. If Parliament won't vote for it, I will seek a dissolution. And that would either have brought the rebels to heel or there would have been a general election. And in either case, the issue would be nearer resolution. That incidentally was how Edward Heath got the European Communities Bill through in 1972. He threatened a dissolution and he won a majority of just eight on second reading. And in 1993, when uh, there was a vote against the government, against the opt-out from the social chapter of the Maastricht Treaty, John Major simply came back the next day and said, look, this is a matter of confidence. If you don't reverse this, I will seek a dissolution. And the rebels came to heel. The government was defeated in a vote of no confidence. The Conservatives might legitimately say, well, we've got 14 days under the Act to find a new leader who can secure the confidence of Parliament. But the Labour Party might say, no, the Queen should call Jeremy Corbyn. He's the leader of the opposition, which, after all, has defeated the government. So it gives the Queen some discretion, which the Fixed-Term Parliament Act was designed to prevent. Now, the role of the Queen in all this is is very simple. Her duty is to um, assent to all legislation when so advised by her government. She has no other role in Brexit, except to try and do what she's already tried to do, to calm the atmosphere by saying, let's all remember, we belong to the same country, we have to live together, uh, uh, and so on and so on. She made a similar speech after the Scottish independence referendum, that people had strong feelings, but should now try and resolve them in some form of amity.
2: I mean, this must all be a nightmare for the palace, which wants to stay out of politics. I mean, They made that intervention but basically they don't want to make any serious political decisions but they conceivably there's a situation where they might have to well i think the real
0: nightmare for the palace is the deep divisions in the country on brexit which the referendum has revealed um referendums are meant to resolve issues and indeed i'm broadly in favor of them for that reason but clearly the 2016 brexit referendum has not done that And indeed, I would say the divisions in the country on Brexit are as deep as anything we've seen since the divisions in the country in the 1930s on appeasement, Munich and the Spanish Civil War and so on. Normally, I think it's fair to say in this country, political issues don't dig very deep by contrast with the continent. I mean, in the local pub, people don't care that much whether you're left wing or right wing whereas i think in countries such as france or spain uh, and and a number of other continental countries these political differences really do matter in britain they've tended to be on the surface but the leave remain issue is dividing people sometimes dividing families dividing friends perhaps dividing um people meeting in the pub and so on in a way that I don't think any other post-war issue has done. I mean, Suez did, but for a comparatively brief period, and the miners' strike did as well in 1984-05. But again, that was for a comparatively brief period. Brexit looks as if it could go on for quite a long time. And I think that would be what worries the palace, because their natural instinct is for conciliation, for unity, for holding the country together, and, and so on.
2: The first referendum certainly was divisive uh, and one of the main arguments made against holding a rerun is that the second would be <laughs> so fraught and would pit half the country against the other side again and we just uh, can't, can't cope with that. Well, I, I am in print or have been in
0: print as advocating a further referendum. I now think that is probably not practicable. Um, it would resolve the issue if you had another leave majority. And it would clearly resolve the issue if you had another large, if you had a large Remain majority, something over 60 to 40. But that second outcome is probably unlikely. And one possibility is a narrow Remain majority, let's say for argument's sake 54-46, on a turnout which may not be comparable. To that in 2016 you had a very large turnout 72 percent the largest in any uh, national election in Britain since 1992. Now it may be if we had another referendum some of the Brexiteers would boycott it and therefore turnout would be lower so the second referendum wouldn't be seen as legitimate so I'm afraid I think there are arguments to say that a second referendum, a further referendum, would not resolve the issue. And um, I I don't think we ought to be put off by the fact that some people say there'll be civil disobedience or even terrorism. We can't be blackmailed. If a second referendum is the right thing to do, it is the right thing to do. But it's now coming to appear that it's not practicable. There's a further point that the people in favour of it can't agree on the options. And yet another argument that... Uh, to get the legislation through would take at least six months. It took seven months in 2015. That means extending beyond the date of the European Parliament elections, and that would lead to another legal problem because if we don't fight in those elections, the government could be sued in the courts because the European Charter, which I mentioned previously, gives everyone a right a right to stand and vote in those elections, um, which they would be deprived of, If we did elect MEPs, they would be taking part in the succession to uh, Mr Juncker, who retires as president of the European Commission. And I don't think the European Union would welcome that very much. And there's perhaps a final point. Does the European Union want a country to belong to it? where nearly half the country, let's assume in a second referendum, is opposed to it and continues to agitate to get us out, it wouldn't be a very happy situation. So I've come to the very reluctant and sad conclusion that we have to go through with Brexit.
4: So we go through with this thing with um, half the country bitterly opposed, um, with lots of bits of the Constitution being refashioned in a very ad hoc way along Away, what hopes do you have of uh, knocking some sense back into English governance in the year ahead with all of this going on, a transition, a protracted renegotiation, and all the rest of it?
0: Well, I think the government's deal, and I'm perhaps in a minority in thinking this, is the least bad solution obtainable. And I think the government has got a better deal on uh, Northern Ireland and on the customs union and on the future relationship than I would have thought possible, because the political declaration lays down the possibility that we can have a very close relationship with the EU, nearly frictionless trade, but also the freedom to negotiate our own trade agreements. But on the constitution, I say in my book, Beyond Brexit, perhaps uh, with more optimism than is justified, that precisely because we are having this unprotected constitution when we leave the European Union. This might just prove our own constitutional moment. And if it isn't, if we don't have a constitution, nevertheless, the judges may take upon themselves the powers to protect rights. That, after all, is what they did in the Factor Tame decision in 1991 and in the Benkar Bush decision in 2017. They could have come to different judgments but they decided that the protection of rights was of fundamental importance. And the judges, I think each generation of judges is more liberal than the last. They may take the protection of rights in their own hands.
2: Vernon, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tom, for your insights.
4: That's all for this week. Thanks so very much uh, for listening um, to me, Tom Clark, and Vernon Bogdanor of King's College. Thanks also to Alex Dean, who was speaking to me with him. Also, Samir Rahim, who you heard from earlier in the podcast here in the heart of Westminster. Stephanie Boland was this week's producer. And if you enjoyed the Prospect podcast, please do give us a rating and a review. It really does help. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much.